This interview with NDP candidate Arvi Lewis was recorded on Friday, August 20th, a day before disturbing images of police violence at Ferry Creek went viral on social media. After our interview, Lewis tweeted this statement about the police aggression. Quote, The world is horrifically upside down. Our province is on fire and the people defending trees are being brutalised. Meanwhile, the corporations responsible for planetary arson are rewarded with tens of billions of public dollars. We need to change everything right now. To read more about this situation, please check out our free Monday newsletter right after you listen to this podcast. Enjoy the show. We are now one week into the federal election campaign that absolutely all of us were so desperately asking for and are so excited about despite the ongoing pandemic, raging wildfires and the myriad of other interconnected crises here in so-called British Columbia and around the world. I'm of course kidding, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an opportunity for all of us to demand real action on the climate emergency from candidates in all political parties this election. Recently, I spoke with Cheryl Cameron at Dogwood BC, who said that the time for towing party lines is over and that instead we should be looking for mavericks. Not the maverick party, I should stress, but people who are going to push federal parties to do better and hold them accountable in the House of Commons. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by filmmaker, educator and climate activist Arvi Lewis, who is running for the NDP in the West Vancouver, Sunshine Coast, Sea to Sky country riding. My first question, Arvi, do you consider yourself to be a maverick candidate? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a rookie. I'm a 54-year-old rookie. I, I, am, I mean, my conviction and my motivation is that we are in a terrifying series of interconnected emergencies, as you hinted at in your intro. And it is time for all of us who are paying attention to get out of our comfort zones and do whatever we can think of. And I've spent 30 years uh, in journalism, uh, activist journalism, uh, social movement, storytelling, climate activism, filmmaking. And I think we are building power on the outside and we need more accomplices uh, on the inside because with if we have to uh, slash our emissions at least in half in a number of years, less, much less than a decade, we simply need government action now. And that we, so we just must have an electoral interface if we're serious about confronting not just the climate emergency, but all of the all of the cascading linked emergencies. Well, while we're on the topic of uh, mavericks, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, announced his promise this week to train uh, 1,000 new firefighters to combat wildfires, which we know are currently destroying communities and homes across British Columbia. So, Avi, what do you think of this announcement, given the Liberal government's climate record to date? I mean, it's... Uh, it, it's a painful irony to suggest putting out the fire when your policies have stoked it. Um, and I think it's very painful for communities across the interiors of this province right now. One of our campaign team was trying to uh, make calls to voters last night and was watching the uh, smoke roll in over Ladysmith, which I'm looking across the Salish Sea at that fire right now. Um, this we, We've had smoke season in British Columbia for a number of years now and each year it gets more terrifying. This year we had the first mass casualty event of the climate emergency era. Um, The number of people who died, 569 excess unexpected deaths in the heat dome. I mean, in, in the language of my people, it takes a lot of chutzpah to be a prime minister that bought a pipeline that gave more than $18 billion to the fossil fuel industry in 2020 that 
with this incredible story from the breach, established a secret committee for the oil and gas industry during the pandemic, which had four and a half lobbying contacts a day with the government of Canada, and then to, to roll in in a, in, a, in a cynical snap election uh, and, and talk about training more firefighters. I mean, I, I, it's insulting, frankly. On the subject of TMX, obviously the federal NDP has repeatedly expressed its opposition to that project. Um, but I didn't see an explicit commitment in the party platform to actually cancelling the project. So whatever the makeup of the next parliament, what would you do as an MP to stop the construction of more fossil fuel infrastructure in Canada? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the party and the leader have been clear, absolutely, against the, the Trans Mountain expansion project. That's that's a that's a, a no-brainer. Um, on the subject of the NDP climate platform, I'm actually really pleased and really proud to run on it. Um, and the 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 issue of fossil fuel subsidies uh, has exploded under the Liberal government. And 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 you know, like buying a pipeline that nobody that the, even the operators didn't want to run because it's not profitable. Um, more than that, the NDP platform has a real accounting for the climate impacts of the entire government, and this is utterly necessary for an emergency response. So, uh, altering the mandate of the Bank of Canada to take into account climate. Accountability uh, is a fundamental measure uh, that could, you know, that could open the door to, you know, climate funding, uh, funding for massive climate action uh, coming from the Bank of Canada uh, and green bonds. So there's the fiscal side, but also a lot of fossil fuel subsidies, and many of these projects are economically unviable. And so they need public money in order to stagger on in their dinosauric way. Um, the Export Development Corporation. And the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board are both up to their eyeballs in toxic fossil fuel investments around the world. Um, and so the NDP in the platform says climate accountability has to be baked into the and emissions reduction strategies have to be baked into the mandates of all of these important government agencies. That's a whole of government approach. And, uh, and it does not bode well for fossil fuel projects, that's for sure. And one of the major, I mean, obviously, your credentials as a climate activist uh, come quite a bit from the fact that you co-authored the LEAP manifesto. Uh, obviously, one of the major challenges it faced at the time uh, was the fact that there was an NDP government in Alberta that had embraced fossil fuel extraction. In BC today, we have a provincial government that gave the green light to LNG Canada. It's continuing to subsidize fossil fuel corporations, and it pushed through the LNG pipeline despite opposition from Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. Um, so if the federal NDP was to cause a major upset and, and form government, what do you think the relationship between a governing NDP caucus and provincial governments might look like in terms of climate action and decolonization? <laughs> so let me get this straight. You're asking a rookie candidate to speculate on what happens if there's a majority government and we're going to talk about interjurisdictional <laughs> relations. No. no, look, look, the, the, the question, like the International Energy Agency last month, uh, which is not exactly Greenpeace, you know, which has, has really been the mainstream of a fossil fuel dominated global energy community uh, over decades said that in order to meet Paris targets and, and for a climate safe future, there can't be new fossil fuel in, uh, infrastructure investments. This is, you know, this, this is now a, a scientific consensus. It's coming from uh, all these mainstream major organizations and it's going to shape the next decade uh, of, of, of whether or not we rise to this moment or not. I think the ground is really shifting uh, the league manifestos uh, six years ago now, and 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 it has 
what was treated as uh, wildly controversial at the time, I think has now been common sense. We're living in an emergency. People know it. It's at the surface of the skin of the body politic. And the question now is whether humans, all of us, and governments, all of them, are going to start acting like it's actually an emergency and start drastically cutting emissions with real regulations and not with all these market incentives that big corporations can gain. And with none of the massive subsidies uh, that uh, governments all over the world at every level continue to pour in trillions of dollars of, of new fossil fuel investments from governments all over the world since Paris. That has to be reversed on a dime and we need to go in the other direction as a matter of existential urgency. I think that's such a great point about the fact that the ideas of the Leap Manifesto have basically become, I think, more mainstream than ever. And it also seems like one of the main problems we're facing now is not so much outright climate denialism, but politicians, uh, perhaps like Trudeau, who co-opt the language of radical climate mm. action and then mm -hmm. ultimately do nothing about it or, or very little about it. Um, so you've already spoken to some key parts of the NDP platform. What are some other uh, priority action items that you can confidently say will make uh, real change uh, if, if it was enacted? Well, the gigantic one in the NDP platform is carbon budgeting. I mean, if you, like Canada under Trudeau is the only G7 country that's continued to increase emissions since Paris. You look at a country like the UK, which has had either sort of right-wing labor governments, right? Like new labor, Blairite governments or, or, or conservative governments uh, in these past couple of decades. And they've slashed their emissions by like more than 40% in the UK with the two parties, neither of which has really taken on a climate emergency stance. How did they do it? They have an independent climate accountability office, you know, run on the basis of the science. And they have a carbon budgeting system that act doesn't look at how can we incentivize these corporations who now know how to game every system to like dangle little cap and trade or other, other systems that they can use to, to, uh, to get out of reducing emissions. Instead, a carbon budgeting approach, the thing about carbon is you can count it. We know how much there is and we know how much each country produces. And we know historically how much each country has contributed. So we all have a fair share of the remaining atmospheric space. And when you look at the carbon budget, just look, you look at a household budget, how much do we have to spend? And then you apportion it fairly across jurisdictions and countries have to figure out how to stay within that planetary limit. And that is in the NDP climate plan. Carbon budgeting with an independent climate accountability office. Carbon budgeting, not just for the nation as a whole, but by sector. And that is absolutely the, the key measure. We've tried cap and trade. How about cap? There's no other fancy part to like, you know, incentivize these massive polluting corporations. No, we need a carbon budgeting approach. I'm super excited about that at the NDP platform. I think another really important feature of the Leap Manifesto and also more recently the Green New Deal is the recognition of the link between climate justice and class struggle. Um, could you speak a little bit about why you think that's important and do you believe the NDP is still the best political vehicle to unite these two struggles? Yeah, th this is something I thought a lot about before I went into politics and, and chose this path. And, and actually, I think it's, it's a critical point. We, we can't just have climate action. That was like climate movement 1.0. It was all about parts per million and it was about techno solutions and it didn't land with people, didn't feel urgent, and it didn't speak to people's real daily working lives. We need climate justice. If we're going to make this change, what the IPCC said in 2018 requires rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society. That's a direct quote of what is necessary 
to secure even the chance of a safer future for all living things everywhere, then we, why would we not bring social justice, racial justice, gender justice, justice for all people into the changes, the massive changes that we have to make? That was the, that was the whole point of the framing of the Leap Manifesto. It's the justice piece that the NDP gets and has always got better than any other party. My grandpa wrote a book in, in, in my David Lewis, who was one of the founders of the CCF, wrote a book in 1943 called Make This Your Canada. And it was an argument about how Canada responded to the Second World War. And Marshall, the government led a massive societal mobilization and instructed the captains of industry in a planned economy in the Second World War, what would be produced where and by whom. They still made lots of money, but Canada contributed massively to the war effort. And the argument in 1943 coming from David Lewis and Frank Scott, the great socialist poet, was we need to apply a wartime mentality to the war on poverty and inequality. And in that book in 1943, they talked about the 1% and the 99% in 1943. Now, I don't think the, the kids I was hanging out with in Zuccotti Park in 2011 were like reading my grandpa's book, but that's what's been baked into the DNA of the CCF NDP from the beginning. The, the, the material conditions of working people. And that's the focus. And Jagmeet has been absolutely stellar on this through the entire uh, minority parliament and in this ele election campaign, talking about a wealth tax, talking about clawing back the corporate welfare that was doled out to the pandemic profiteers to the tune of $78 billion of, of increased wealth from, from the billionaire class. We need that money back. It needs to be redistributed to people in the form of real uh, universal public services, and all of that fits perfectly with a climate mandate to slash our emissions at least in half in much less than a decade and actually get started on transformational change. So the justice part is absolutely key. And there's another reason why too, it's not just a moral argument, it's a strategic necessity. We need a people, an all-in people's movement was what my grandpa was calling for in the 1940s. And to build an all-in people's movement, a social consensus, a true society-wide mobilization for change, people need to see their lives getting better, not in 25 years for some 2050 tar, now, right now, people are vulnerable, they are hurting, they are scared in the fourth wave, they've come out of 18 months of isolation and loneliness. People, there's an employment crisis among young people. There's a disaster among, uh, among seniors who have been dying in long-term care in for-profit long-term care homes. Another thing the NDP will do away with uh, and that is very clear in this platform. And we need to put the needs of working people first in the way we make this gigantic transition. And to go back to the way you introduced this, this whole conversation, we live in a period of interconnected crises. We need solutions that solve multiple problems at once and we need to connect up and link up the human power to drive that change, both in the outside and social movement world and in the inside and the political system. And I don't see, there's no other party in Canadian political history that offers the opportunity to connect the dots the way the NDP does. And Jagmeet Singh is, I, I feel, is really leading on that in this election campaign so far. So you're running uh, in a riding that's not traditionally known for its embrace of, of class struggle. Um, so yeah. how, is, how is this kind of message going to go down in, in places like West Vancouver, which spans some of the wealthiest neighbourhoods in Canada? It's a big, weird riding that I'm running in. It really is three ridings. West Vancouver uh, um, is one of the wealthier parts of, of, of Canada or has some of those pockets. Um, uh, sea to Sky uh, is a stunningly beautiful 
uh, tourist-oriented economy, very outdoorsy, Squamish and Whistler. And then there's the farming community of Pemberton. And then there's the Sunshine Coast where I live, which is uh, a little bit more um, alternative culture, but also, you know, post uh, resource extraction, the pulp mills are, there's only one left and the fishing economy is almost gone. Uh, and forestry is not the, the contributor that it used to be on the coast. So it is really a, a, a huge cauldron of different uh, experiences and economic factors. The truth is that as I've been fanning out across this gigantic riding, calling people on the phone, knocking on people's doors, we are just hearing climate, 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 and housing because there's a massive housing crisis in this riding. And, and there's a labor shortage because people can't afford to live in the place where they want to work. Um, and, and there are people who are, I mean, the, the, the number of people in this riding who are paying more than 50% of their income on rent is staggering, is heartbreaking. And so the NDP's plan to spend $14 billion to, to, to build half a million units of housing and not more market housing for developers to just speculate on and keep inflating this bubble that Trudeau has, has, has blown so dangerously big in the last uh, six years. But non-market housing, public housing, co-op housing, housing that's actually directed at vulnerable populations and people who actually work for a living and just, you know, want to buy a home as part of as part of working your butt off all your life. So we're finding that the, the, the climate emergency is just front and center for people, and the housing emergency is 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 linked. Um, and the notion that we could address those two crises, you know, with one big plan to build half a, a million units of, you know, they should be zero emissions housing if we're starting to build new housing now in the housing supply uh, is really resonating here. And people in West Vancouver, they, they, they're looking out across the water at all those tankers and they're thinking about the Trans Mountain expansion uh, that the Trudeau government bought and paid for with our money and is driving through against indigenous resistance, against local community existence, resistance. You're gonna have, uh, you know, I don't know how many times more tankers. People are used to seeing container ships out there. But all of a sudden, you're going to have dozens and dozens of these oil tankers going through a spill in the inlet. What does that do to the communities in West Vancouver? What does that do to Ambleside Beach? What does that do to the waterfront views of those wealthy residents of West Vancouver? Everybody in a coastal community is on the front lines of the climate crisis. And those messages are resonating extremely strongly throughout this riding. So I don't live in your riding, but I do live on the northern end of the Sunshine Coast and the traditional territory of the Tla'amin people. Uh, and yes, there's definitely a, a good community of, of really dedicated climate activists up here. Uh, one of them, my, a friend of mine, um, recently said to me he wasn't sure if he's glad that you're running this election because he wondered whether your energy is best spent inside of Parliament with all of its constraints and frustrations or outside of it, building power on the activist front lines. What do you make of that? And why is your place now in parliamentary politics? Why is your friend inside my head? Get them out of me. <laughs> uh, yes, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm agonizing about this. I, I, I really think we need a dual power approach to change, to transformative change. And I know and have worked with so many incredible leaders in the climate justice movement. And some of us are trying to like, intervene in the electoral sphere. Um, Anjali Apadurai, one of the great climate, climate justice thinkers and, and, and organizers, uh, has just won the NDP nomination in Vancouver Granville. And Matthew Green and Leah Gazan, uh, Leah Gazan and, and Peter Julian were just endorsed by 350 in the first round of their uh, climate champion endorsements. And so we have a climate caucus emerging in the NDP, which is really exciting. 
Um, and yeah, I just, I just think we need both. And I've been on the outside for 30 years in different capacities, and I don't diminish for a moment the importance of social movement organizing. I, I feel like movement politicians, like we've seen in the United States with the squad, which grew after its first electoral, electoral breakthrough, um, is a really exciting model to speak to working class realities, to speak to young people who are graduating with student debt and unemployment for you know stretching out as far as they can see, to speak to indigenous communities, which are still being dragged through the courts by the Trudeau government to deny basic equality in, in, in education and healthcare for kids, uh, residential school survivors. I mean, it's just like, it's the, the, the coalition of social forces uh, that, can, that, that is needed to build power on the outside is there and they need accomplices on the inside. And that's just what we got to do now. Um, and so I don't think any of us can stop pushing. And I think the, 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 the strategic decision about an inside versus an outside strategy is a personal one for anyone at a particular moment in, political, in the political reality, in history, and in their own life. And so this is what I'm doing right now, but that's not some cosmic judgment on like what everybody else should do or knows. It's a weird enough thing to be a candidate in an election that I, 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 I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but it's also really exciting to have a short-term goal to try to win something in organizing terms um, and, and springboard into the heart of the, the, the sausage factory of how laws get made in this country. And if, if I get to the other side of it on September 21, and I'm, I'm, I'm an underdog candidate, there's no question about that. But if I do get to it, uh, then movement folks will know that, that, that they've got someone on the inside. Right. Well, I'll be sure to let my friend know. And uh, hopefully- Yeah, they need, to, they, they need to kick my ass when I'm in there. That's, that's part <laughs> of the deal. I'm pretty sure he will. Um, and uh, hopefully he won't be too disappointed if you do win a seat in Parliament, although I'm sure he won't be. We'll, we'll check in on, on the 21st, shall we? <laughs> yes, let's. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Avi. Um, to learn more about Avi and his work, I encourage listeners to head over to our friends at Canadian Dimension, where you'll find a series of articles about Avi's candidacy and what it means for the NDP. And I'll be sure to include a link to that series in the episode description. Harvey Lewis, thank you once again for your time and may the maverick energy guide you this election. Thank you, Alex. Did you call me avilewis.ca? I wasn't sure if you made a mistake and, and promoted my website. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just had to wedge that in there. You know, I'm running for office now. What can I do? You've been listening to an episode of the Maple Election Podcast Series. To support our work, please go to readthemaple.com and click subscribe. Thank you for your support.